and um, to join us in that. Um, this weekend, we are excited to um, have Jared Kirkwood with us to um, teach. And Jared is one of the teaching pastors at our Mariners campus in Irvine. And um, we're excited to have him. So welcome, Jared. All right. Thanks so much. That was a long walk. I'm just going to jump the stage next time because I have long legs so I can do that. Hey, good morning. We okay? Wow. We're not, I guess. I work with junior high kids, so I'm used to like people just talking all the time. So feel free to just shout at me, to yell, to clap, to laugh. Because if I tell dumb jokes, I need laughter. I, my soul needs that. So please uh, be a part of that. As uh, Kim mentioned, my name is Jared. And I've been around Mariners for a little while. I've actually been on staff for eight years. And I interned for a couple years before that. All of which spent in student ministries. I hang out with junior high and high school students every single day. And so it is a crazy, crazy world that I live in. Um, I've been married for seven years to a wonderful woman named Kim. We have a 15-month-old son who was here last night eating toys in the the child care thing. And so uh, I'm excited. I love this because I've been a part of Mariners for a while, and yet I've never been able to spend time with you as one of our unique communities down here in South County. So thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Uh, and you have already done such a great job of making me feel like I I belong here, which is really fun for me. What I want to do this morning is talk about this idea of belonging, this thing that I think deep down inside of us, inside of the human condition, we all have this need or desire to belong, to be accepted, to feel worthy by another person, to feel valued or significant. And yet, I think we often try to fill it in with what will make us feel belong, feel like we belong, rather than who will make us feel like we belong. Now, when I think about people who belong to one another, naturally, I think about junior high girls. Because when they belong to each other, they dress the same, they all talk the same, they move their arms the same, right? They all go see Twilight. They all belong to one another. Now, another group of people who you can visibly tell that they belong to one another are Harley Davidson owners, You ever see these people, right? They all look the same, okay? They're all kind of grisly. They look a little angry. They have a beard. They have tattoos. They have a chain that attaches to a belt loop to their wallet, right? They have cute leather vests, you know what I mean? With patches on them. Those guys, you know what I'm talking about? Last night, I actually told that joke, and a Harley guy came up to me in the parking lot as I'm, like, loading my son into the car, and he's like, this vest is not cute. I was like, you're right, that's fine. A couple years ago, I said to my wife, I went, hey, uh, I said, babe, I think it's time for me to get a motorcycle. <laughs> like, I think I'm going to become a Harley guy now. It seems like me, I, f- I feel like I fit the mold. Harley guys look at me and they think, that guy should be one of us. And so I went to my wife and said, I think we should make this happen, uh, to which she replied, no. Uh, and so I got the next best thing to a Harley, a Subaru, right? <laughs> Family vehicle, comfy, climate controlled, all-wheel drive, 11 airbags. It's awesome. Right? Any other Subaru people in the house? So they're like, great. Thanks for being here, every none of you. So Subaru people, picture one right now, right? Don't picture me, picture a Subaru person. They're probably eating granola. Their arms are firmly wrapped around a tree. They have sandals with socks on. You know what I'm talking about? These are Subaru people and we need them. And, uh, and so uh, a couple weeks ago, I was up in the mountains, and I was having this conversation with my friend Ben, talking about this unique part of Harley culture. Do you know what happens when one Harley is approaching another Harley from the opposite direction? Do you know what happens in that little subset of our culture? 
the, the wave, the Harley wave. It's not like, hey, you know, it's not one of those things. They just give the little, like, two fingers out, like, you know, you're cool, I see you, don't worry about it. And if another, like, non-Harley person tries to wave at a Harley person, they'll, they'll give the wave, and the Harley guy will be like, didn't see you. They'll just, they will, they will literally shun them off to the side of the road. And so I was talking to my friend Ben. I said, I think it's time for the Subaru community to get the wave. And so we're up in Big Bear, and that's like California Mecca for Subarus. And so we're up in the mountains, and I said to my friend, I, will, I guarantee that I will get people to wave back at me because Subaru people are nice and fun-loving and they enjoy each other's company. And I said, I, I believe that by the end of the weekend, it will sweep across America that the Subaru wave is the greatest thing that has ever hit Subaru car culture or something like that. And my friend said, yeah, right. And so sure enough, we get up the road and we're in uh, Big Bear for three days. And over the course of three days, I probably crossed 30 or 40 Subarus. And I tried to give them the like, the like, hey man, it's cool. No way. This didn't work. That face. Did not work for Subaru people. So then I was like, I'm going to give you like the full high five. Like you can see this, right? This is a big hand. You can see this in the window. Nope. No wave on that one too. Okay. How about the thumbs up? Huh? Thumb- no thumbs up. None of that. In peace sign. You guys are kind of hippies, right? Peace. No peace sign from anybody. The A-OK. No, nothing worked. I tried all weekend. 30, 40 Subarus denied every single. Subaru people hate me. I don't even belong to the Subaru culture. And I'm like, we love, we are people. We are one and the same. We have an awesome car that has all-wheel drive and you live in the mountains. And the Subaru wave did not catch on. I just wanted to feel like I belonged to people. And yet I was rudely warned that I did not, rudely reminded that I do not belong. But I still try. Even, even yesterday I was waving at a Subaru. and I was by myself too. Literally that's how committed I am to this. I waved by myself to another Subaru and they didn't wave. So we have a problem in our world, right? We, we, we want to belong, and yet that requires us to be vulnerable and authentic, right? There's one sense of belonging where we can just wave at other people in other cars, right? There's another sense of belonging that says, okay, I'll put a sticker on my car and show you kind of who I belong to, right? The proudest people in California today are the ones with UCLA stickers on their car, right? Anybody have a UCLA sticker on their car? No, no I would never, <laughs> The other not-so-proud people, but they're bonded in anger this weekend, I guess, are USC fans, right? Um, we put stickers on our car that says, hey, my kid's an honor roll student at such-and-such such school, and that's a little belonging, a little club that we say. We have another group of people that say, my kid beat up your honor roll student, right? Another sense of belonging right there. Now, that's one level of belonging to one another, but there's a deeper level. This idea of having to be vulnerable and authentic and real with one another Draws up emotions of fear if you're like me. You don't want to let people in because you're afraid if they really saw the true you that they would run out the back door so fast. That they would want nothing to do with you because they see how small and how petty and how bitter we all are inside. Just, is that just me? Might, might just be me. No, it's you too? Okay, good. Making me feel a little bit better. Now, I believe that as we continue on this weekend in our Greater Than series that we're going to be confronted, that we're going to experience a God who we belong to without having to add anything else in our life to him. That we belong, that we are his, we are with him, and he is ours. Now, if you have been following God for a little while, if you've been uh, following Jesus, I believe that this weekend could be a very significant one for you if you can grasp this concept. 
And if this is your first time to the church, or if you've been coming here for a little bit, yet you have not uh, sort of crossed that line of faith, you haven't said, I, I want to accept Jesus into my heart, I think what you'll uh, experience this weekend is that you will see that we are all the same. Deep down inside, we are the same. That you should feel comfortable this weekend. I'm so glad you're here because I think this message is, is written for you. And so as we move forward, uh, this message, as we jump into Colossians chapter 2, scholars would agree that this is one of the most difficult and complex, they call it a deep passage in the New Testament. And so naturally, uh, when we come up with complex and deep and difficult passages in the New Testament, they bring the junior high pastor to speak to you, right? It just, it just makes sense. And so here we go. We're going to be jumping uh, this morning into Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. If you have a, um, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to, to turn there because we're going to camp there for a little while. If you do not, we have ushers that are very timely coming forward. I would love to give you one. Just raise your hand, give them a hoot and a holler and a high five, and they would love to get you a Bible this morning. Okay, so as I mentioned, we're going to start here in uh, verse 8. So chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So Paul is writing a letter to a church that he's planted in a town called Colossae. And he is right now sitting in a prison cell. He is sitting under Roman guard in a Roman prison, and he's writing a letter to a church that he loves. He's been getting word that they have been listening to some false voices, that they have, have understood who the person of Jesus is, and yet has said, okay, Jesus is great, but he's not quite enough. You know what else you need? You need to pay attention to all the Jewish traditions, to all these other things that are out there. And so they are starting to hear messages that say, you need to do more. You have to be a part of this as well. You have to pay attention to that. And so Paul is sitting in a jail cell, and he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. He is right now in captivity. He is stuck. He cannot go anywhere. And yet, he is writing to this church that he loves, and he's saying the captivity that you are facing right now is far greater than the physical captivity that I'm currently in. I am stuck in this place, and yet, you are in danger of being, having your souls, everything taking you captive which is far worse than just physically being in jail. He says, don't pay attention to all of those other philosophies, those things that are out there. Basically what he's saying is, don't focus on the what's that are being talked about. What you need to focus on is who. Focus on who. Look in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, which is God, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power in authority. So right off the bat, Paul is trying to help us to understand that Jesus was 100% God. All of God was put into bodily form, right? A couple weeks ago, Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. All of the fullness of God is in Jesus. And then... When you accept Jesus, all of God's fullness is in you, meaning you are now complete. You are full. You are satisfied. You are enough. You are everything in Jesus. So why do you try to put other things into your life? He's saying everything you need is in fullness with him. 
Everything is there. You are complete. Okay, that's the easy part. You ready to get a little bit deeper? Thinking caps on. Here we go. Verse 11. In him you were also circumcised. Also ironic to bring the junior high pastor down to talk about circumcision. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, uh, your, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So now Paul is tackling some very big traditions in our faith. The first being circumcision and the second being baptism. One of which we still perform today, right? Thank God, everyone says. And so here we go. He's talking about these, um, these super important things in the Jewish faith. And so he's looking at this, or uh, he's writing to this group of people who were not Jewish. And he's saying... I want you to understand the importance of circumcision. Because if you and I could jump back to Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of Genesis, God's having a conversation with a man named Abraham, a founder, a pillar, a father of our faith. And he says, I promise that I will make you a great nation. You will have more descendants, more offspring than the stars in the sky. And Abraham says, we have one problem. I'm about 100 years old and I don't have a child. I have no son. There's no way that you could make me a great nation if I don't have a family. And God says, I promise I will give you, I will give you a son and actually my own son will actually come from your line, from the Davidic line. And so, uh, from the Abraham line, sorry. And so he promises him this and he says, as a sign, when you have a son, as a sign that you and I are in this unique covenant relationship, that I am yours and you are mine, as a sign of that, When you have that son, I want him to be circumcised. And on the eighth day, I want you to do that as a sign that you and I are together. And so Abraham and all of his followers entered into this ceremony, this tradition called circumcision, as a sign of the covenant relationship between Israel and God. And so now Paul is looking at, uh, or is writing, I'm sorry, to these people in Colossae. And he's saying, I know you're not Jewish, but you were also circumcised, but not by human hand. You were circumcised by Jesus himself. You had an old life that was removed, that was cut off, that was taken away. And that was placed in baptism. So here's the picture of baptism. We all know baptism that has something to do with water, has something to do with being immersed or being dunked under or sprinkled or something of that nature. But at the root, the idea of baptism is that you would take one thing and you would place it in another. That you would take something and it would be placed into something else. And so when Paul talks about that old life that has been removed, cut off, it has been placed into Jesus The old, sinful nature of yourself was placed in to God's own son who was then killed and buried. The picture of baptism is that we take people and we dip them underwater to signify death and we hold them under until they think they're about to die. We shake them a little bit and then we lift them up. Not really. But we do this to symbolize that death that you go underwater, that your old self was removed, it has been placed into Jesus where it died. And then by the power of God, just the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave, you and I are resurrected alongside, not to our old life, not a modification of who we once were. We are raised to a new life in Christ. 
That is where you and I become complete. When our old self is cut off and killed and destroyed and burned and buried and drowned and all this kind of stuff. And then we are raised to new life. And that is when we become complete in him. All of the fullness of ourselves comes out when we are placed in Christ. So Paul is trying to say, you are now part of this covenant relationship. It is no longer just for Jews. You and I are in covenant relationship with the king. It is a beautiful picture of what he's trying to say here. That you guys, even though I know that we feel like there, uh, we sin in our lives, that there's still difficult times every day, you and I, our old life has been cut off. It is no longer with us. We have been raised to new life, which is found and formed in Christ. Let's go to verse 13. So Paul moves on and he says, When you were dead in your sins and all of the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to a cross. A few years ago, I, uh, a few years ago, I was in college a lot longer than a few years ago. When I was in college, uh, I had an opportunity to work at a summer camp in Colorado for a couple weeks. And so I was with four of my friends or three of my friends, and we got up to um, this camp, and they said, hey, we uh, want to build a paintball course, and we'd like for you guys to build it. And we're like, awesome, this is so great. So they sent us out to this plot of woods that's sort of on the back of the camp property, and it used to be a previous, like, kids camp. So there was a fort that was already there, and then, like, 300 yards away, there was a, a teepee over there as well. And we're like, these are perfect boundaries, uh, little forts uh, that we can have them be the headquarters of each of the things, and so each of the teams. And so we just basically cordoned off uh, like a hundred acres, which is pretty big, maybe like 50 acres now that I think about it, uh, of this piece of, uh, this plot of land. And so we just caution taped it off that that would be the, the paintball arena. And so we went down, made friends with um, the local paintball company uh, down in the, the, uh, the town because we were going to buy hundreds of boxes of paintball for this whole summer. And these guys were like, hey, um, because you're buying so much paint from us, uh, we would like to give you a special box of paint just for you. Because the kids' paint came in these bright orange casings, and when they hit you, they would splatter like green or blue. And it would be, um, be very easy to see where the paintballs are coming from because they're bright orange flying through the woods. And they said, hey, we want to give you a special box of paint. And it's our team paint that we use when we go to battle, which I'm like, that's weird. And so uh, that you have special paint anyway. And so uh, we opened up the box, and our eyes was like Christmas morning. They were black casing so that you could not see them fly through the air. And then when they splattered, it was this bright yellow, this neon yellow. Now, we would go out, we built the course, the kids would show up, we'd split them up into two teams. We'd have one of our team members would stay in the headquarters, would fill CO2, talk to the kids that were now dead because they got shot in the middle of the game. And then we would be out there sort of refereeing the game, which really means we were just hiding. And so uh, we had built special little like foxholes in the ground that was covered in like shrubbery and things that no kid knew about. We never told them about. And we would go hide in those holes. In fact, we even had one of those little tree forts too that we built so that we could climb up in a tree and we could just snipe kids if they got too close. And so our friend back in headquarters would radio us and would say, hey, this game's been going a little bit too long. There's only three people out of 30 that are in the, uh, the little headquarters or whatever and they're getting kind of bored. So he would radio us and then we would go, guys, it, and we would just systematically destroy every kid in the paintball field. We would just, in our little foxholes, 
And then we'd sneak. It was crazy. I mean, we were, we were just short of having underground tunnels that we could pop up and destroy kids, right? And so we would finish a game. We'd blow the whistle. We'd head back to the headquarters. And it was always hilarious to me to stand in there and look at the color of paint on these kids' T-shirts. Because when you get hit by paint, it would splatter. And we had a unique color. We had bright yellow. And you would look at the 30 kids that are inside headquarters, and 27 of them are filled with yellow paint, which we killed ourselves. And they had no idea, which I thought was awesome. And so what I learned, though, in that moment was that some kids in there were literally covered in paint. They had, head to toe, we destroyed them as if all five of us circled around, just, ah, just destroyed this one kid. Some had their backs covered because they did the one thing you never do in paintball, which is like, there's a guy, turn and run. No, you never do that because we're just like, okay. <laughs> and then you shoot them, right? And their paint's like covered. Some people would have shot square in the face, right on the face mask, and they'd be trying to squeegee off their eyes. What I learned, though, is whether you had just got brushed on the arm and yet there was paint on you, or you were covered in yellow paint, dead was dead. You were gone. There was no way you were alive. You were not allowed to play in the game anymore. Dead was dead. And what Paul is saying in this passage is you were dead. It didn't matter what sins you committed. You were dead. There is no sin that's greater than any other sin. You were dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He gave you life. The life that God wants for you is only found in him. That is what true life is. It's a life that is not something that we can achieve throughout any other way of this world. Life is given to us by God and it is built to be in Christ. Now, when Rome in the first century would go and conquer lands, they were kind of fond of conquering people. They would go into cities or regions or nations, and they would conquer them. And as a display of their power, they would pull out all of the treasure from that previous land, and it's now theirs. They would pull out all that treasure, and they would parade it through the streets so they could say, look at who we are, look how great we are. Then they would take all the soldiers of that other army, and they would strip them of their armor, and they would chain them together, and they would make them walk through the streets as a public humiliation of what, was, what once was, right? Then they would take all the government officials, the people that ruled that nation, and they would strip them of their clothes, and they would put them on the back of a chariot, and they would parade them through the streets and say, look who used to rule here. They made a huge declaration that Rome has conquered this place. Now, if you were around in the time when Jesus was crucified, you would have said, too, that Rome won. You would have looked at Jesus having just paraded through the streets with his own cross on his back. People making a mockery of him, spitting on him, hurling insults at him, wearing a crown of thorns, and then raised up on a cross and died right there. You would have looked at that and said, Rome has just won. And yet, you and I know that even death, which is far greater than the empire of Rome, even death could not keep our king in the ground. That even death had no power over him. Look at what it says in verse 15. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses in this passage. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. A public spectacle. Rome was in the business of making public spectacles of their conquered. And Jesus, by the power of God, was raised from death back to life. 
and made a public spectacle of evil and sin in all the earthly power and authority that was against him. You see, Jesus, when he raised from the dead, he went around and he met with his disciples and he spoke and he taught and he promised that, hey, I have to go back to my father, but there will be one that's coming called the Holy Spirit that is greater than me, as we read in the first chapter of Acts. He made a public spectacle of evil. He says, there is nothing greater than the power from my father. There is nothing greater in life than the power and authority that comes from God. So what's about to come in this passage? So Paul teaches this this first part. And he says, here is who you are, right? This is exactly who you are. You were once dead, but you have been given life. And in that life, you have found the fullness of God. He says, so there's about to be some people that are going to continue making false promises, these false prophets that are going to be saying some things. And he's like, I want you to know, those are not of me. Those are not of Jesus. You don't need to listen to those guys. In a sense, he's kind of saying they're a little bit like the replacement refs that showed up in the NFL a little while ago. Remember those guys? Right, so the NFL, the, uh, the um, refs go on sort of lockout. They're like, you know what, we're on strike. We want more money. We want better contracts, whatever. So the NFL says, okay, how about we do this instead? Let's go get some junior college and high school guys, and we'll put them in the ref outfit, and we'll give them a whistle, and they know the hand signals. They'll be fine. Just throw them out on the field. And what's crazy is it kind of worked for a little while. Like they looked the part. They dressed the part. They knew the hand motions. They made right calls until one game. Right? Remember what game it was? That's right. Seattle and uh, Green Bay. And so they're having this, uh, having this game, and everyone's kind of like, there's been some kind of some fuzzy calls throughout the whole game. And then the one final call, right? There's a, a pass that gets thrown. It's supposed to be a, um, a, a uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Green Bay interception. I don't watch football. A Green Bay interception. I'm just kidding. And then uh, they call it a touchdown for, for the Seahawks, right? And so in that moment... Every one of us that was watching television was, I'm in for these replacement reps. This kind of makes sense. And then in that very second, who are these guys? They don't even know what they're doing. They're imposters. They don't even look right. Their shirts are horrible. They don't know how to blow a whistle. They don't know hand motions. They don't even love their mothers. You know what I mean? Like, just, these are wrong. These guys have no idea what they're talking about. Unless you're a Seahawks fan, then you're kind of like, yeah, I like these. Let's keep them up. So what's interesting about these replacement refs, though, is that they, they thought they knew what they were doing, and yet they were making wrong calls all throughout. Paul's about to say, hey, there are guys out there that think they know what they're doing, and yet they're making wrong calls. They're saying wrong things, and you don't need to listen to them. So I'm about to read a, a pretty large section of Scripture. And bear with me. I'm going to just cruise through this. I'm not going to stop. But I want you to hear Paul's encouragement to us is that you are full in Christ. You are alive. Life has been given to you, and it is found in Christ only. You don't have to listen to all those other things of the world. So listen to what he says. Therefore, this is starting in verse 16, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, meaning all of the Jewish traditions that are, people are trying to put on top of Jesus. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. 
The reality, however, is found in Christ. I love that. Reality is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great deal about what they have seen. Uh, They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental uh, spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That's a lot of words to say that you do not belong to the world, that you are not them. He is saying you belong to God. There is a reality that we face in our world, that there are loud voices that are trying to distract us, trying to pull us away, trying to pull us back to that life that we once lived, trying to get a grip of your heart that it was once a master over. And yet, when you chose to follow Jesus, the power and authority of that was broken by the name of Jesus. You no longer are mastered by sin. Would you say this with me? Say, sin is not my master. Sin is not my master. And then say, I belong to Jesus. Okay, say it all together. Sin is not my master. I belong to Jesus. Okay, you got to say it like you kind of mean it, though, just a little bit. All right, so let's try it. You're like, I am a drone. Sin is not my master, right? (laughs) Let's breathe a little. Okay, ready? Sin is not my master. I belong to Jesus. Now, this one's for you. I want you to picture yourself in that moment where you are feeling tempted. You are heading towards jealousy or anger or pride or whatever it is. And you have this phrase on your mind. Say it just barely under your breath so that only you can hear it. But you know that the power of God is in these words. Say, sin is not my master. I belong to Jesus. Go for it. Good. A few years ago, a friend of mine um, went through an international adoption. I would imagine that all of us know somebody that has adopted somebody internationally. Perhaps some of you have even done it yourself. There's a beautiful picture that takes place um, in, in specifically international adoption. I think all adoption is beautiful, but for the purposes of this, international makes the most sense. Um, my friends went over to Ethiopia, and they came across this boy that they were in the process of adopting. And they saw this young child who was born into a, a, a country, into a family that didn't want him, and was placed under the power and authority of a, of a foreign nation, and was placed under the power and authority of an orphanage and those that work in the orphanage. And this child had no possessions, had no hope, had no future for all intents and purposes. And our friends looked at this child and went, that, that child needs to be ours. We need to rescue this child. And through a, really a relatively easy process, I mean, yes, it takes a lot of paperwork and there's background checks and all this kind of stuff, but relatively speaking, that child was rescued 
with the stroke of a pen, was given life again, was actually given hope in a new family. My friends brought this child home and said, you are ours now. You are part of our family. One of the things that we see is it gets much difficult when that child gets older. When a child is a baby and they get adopted, they don't understand the, the sort of the power and the role that the, um, the, of the world that they lived in prior. But when you get a child that's like four, five, six years old, they were forced to live in a society that made them live in fear, that made them live in scarcity, right? We've heard stories of children who don't know when their next meal is going to come, so they store up food however they can. They hide it. They keep it to themselves just in case they don't get to eat again. They don't know when that next meal is coming. Perhaps it's a toy, right? That they would take a toy and they would hold on to it because the fear is if I let this toy go, I might never see it again. And these children are forced to live in a world in which they have to live differently than what you and I may ever understand. And then when they get brought over... uh, and adopted by a real family who loves them and wants to provide for them, the tendency is for those older children to continue to live like they used to. That they would still hide food and they would hoard it to themselves just in case a a next meal didn't come, right? Or they would be really, they would hold tightly to the things that are theirs because they're afraid if they let it go, they'll never see it again. What's beautiful about this is I believe this is our story that we were once children forced to live under the power and authority of a foreign world that made us live in a culture of scarcity, made us live in fear, made us live as though we did not know if anything was going to come to us next. We didn't know if we'd be provided for or cared for or loved by anyone. This is us. And God, the way that only God can, shows up and says, you are mine. You will be a part of my family in all of the rights and privileges that come from me, I will give to you. And you know what? That lifestyle that's back there, it has no authority over you anymore. Imagine when my friend adopted their son, Makai, if the powers and authorities of Ethiopia came over to their house and pounded on the front door and said, we want him back. He's actually ours. My friend would be able to say, no, you have no ownership over him anymore. You have no legal status over him. You have no power and you have no authority in his life because he is ours. That life that we once had, that life that constantly wants us back, that life that wants to take you back from where you are now, will come knocking at your door. That life will come, and it will say, hey, you know what? You can look at that. You know what? You can talk to that person. Hey, you know what? You can treat that person that way. Hey, you know what? It's your money. You earned it. You can do what you want with it. You know what? It's okay to drive that way or speak that way or act that way or think that way or do whatever you think you want. That life has no power or authority over you anymore. And yet, I think we tend to live as though it still has power and authority over us. We still give in to it. We still flirt with it. We still say, ah, it's okay this one time. And yet, you belong to the king. You are God's. You are in his family. And here is what is most beautiful about it. You are enough. You, exactly how you are. The person who showed up here this morning, you are enough. You are loved. You are accepted. 
You belong to God exactly how you are. So why are you trying to add so many other things to your life? Why are you trying to prove that you're worthy of God? Why are you trying to add in all those other things as if Jesus can't take care of it? You're enough. You are enough. We have a really dangerous world that's constantly trying to tell us that you need this amount of money to be happy, that you need that big of a house in order to care for your family, that you need to dress a certain way in order to be accepted, that your body has to look a certain way in order to be loved. Deep down inside of us, we all want to belong. We want to be valued and to be felt worthy. You are. You are in God's family. You belong to him. He is yours and you are his. We are in covenant relationship with Jesus. By the power of the cross, that life that once had power and authority over us was removed and killed. That life is gone. And we have been raised to a new life in the person of Jesus. That legal indebtedness, all that sin that was amassed against us, the sin that you and I could not ever pay for and negotiate on ourselves, was taken care of by Jesus in his death on the cross. It is gone. Everything that you have done has been forgiven. The things that you will do has been forgiven by the power of God. You are free. You are a free person. And that is a beautiful picture. And so throughout this week, here's what I want us to do. When you get back into the normal rhythm of life, whether that is in 10 minutes from now or in a day from now, whenever that happens for you, and you start to feel yourself heading down that road of temptation, I have a little homework assignment for you. When you start to feel yourself wanting to be pulled back into that old life, when you start to feel the temptation of greed or pride or jealousy or anger, of all those things pulling you back and saying, come on, we want you just a little bit longer. When you start to feel those things, would you say to yourself, sin is not my master. I belong to Jesus. Under your breath, in your own mind, however you need to do it, whether it's in the car or at home or in the office, would you just say, sin is not my master. I belong to Jesus. I promise if you take this challenge, you will be met every time with the power and the authority of Jesus and how much greater it is than the power and authority of this world. He will win every single time. Would you pull out your outlines just for a second? There's a space on the back I'm going to invite the band up too just to start getting set. There's a space on the back that has a couple of words and some blank lines. It says, Jesus is greater than the lie, and then there's a space. What lie are you believing in owning and accepting this morning? Is it a lie that says that you have no control over something? A lie that you say you have to, that you're overwhelmed by, or that you have no power to break that habit? Or a lie that says that thing dominates me, that thing has complete control, that thing that I could, um, I, I have no authority over that thing? Is it something like that? Perhaps it's something like mine. The lie that I believe is that I need significance. I mean, I need recognition to feel significance in my life. That I would be recognized for the things that I do, whether it's serving or hanging out with junior high kids or teaching the Bible or whatever it is. That I would need recognition for those things so that I would feel significant. And that's wrong. 
That is such a lie because my significance is deeply rooted in the person of Jesus. When I go to him, I am as significant as I ever need to be. What's that lie that you're believing today? Would you take a second and would you write it down on that first line? Jesus is greater than the lie, and whatever that lie is for you. That lie has no power or authority or ownership over you anymore. And we believe that Jesus, through the work that he did on the cross, is greater than that lie. Would you take that lie and would you write it on the second line as well? As a proclamation that Jesus is greater than anything else that we might think we need to add in order to feel enough for him, in order to feel like we belong. In these next couple moments, we're going to sing a song as a community, as a family that belongs to God. And I want these words in these next few moments to speak about a a king who saved us, who rescued us, and that we belong to him. Would you stand and join us as we sing in these next few moments?